Welcome to episode nine of Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. And Tangents! Wait, did we do it right? I, we never do it right. We did it right. We I, did it right this time. Yeah, we did so. We don't have to edit this? No. So we always start off talking about how we mess up the intro. So we, I think that's getting we old. We gotta no, stop talking about this. We didn't mess it up this time. Oh, okay. So we always talk about how we don't mess up the intro. intro. Well, occasionally we do, but not this time. Yeah. Well, we took a week off, so we have to remember everything all over again. Yeah. So if I push this button. Okay. There. Somebody got bigger. <laughs> anyway. So, Jared, welcome back. Sean, welcome back. Thanks. I was not here the whole time. Neither was I. I actually took some vacation. As did I. Which is like something I don't do. So Yeah, it's good. Good for the soul. And then we had the big uh, Memorial Day celebration here in the States. Yes, For we our did. New Zealand listeners who may not be familiar with American holidays. Yes. Which is actually about celebrating people who are dead. Yep. Not veterans. No, that's Veterans Day. It, it always makes me uncomfortable as a veteran when somebody thanks me on Memorial Day. I'm like, I'm not dead yet. Thank you for your service. Well, you're very welcome. I'm glad I could serve this great com- country and, and ensure your freedoms. Now shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what you did over the uh, Memorial Holiday, Sean, but I hosted a little uh, Mario Kart jamboree. You say you don't know what I did? I actually was the MC for your jamboree. I- I was leading into that. <laughs> I, I was here, Jared. Yeah, in fact, you helped organize most of it. Yeah, I, I think that. it turned out really well. So, I, I, we had a blast. So, uh, for those listening, we we had a little fifteen-player Mario Kart jamboree where we had four screens set up, and uh, we had a little mini tournament. Pretty pretty casual. We didn't take it too seriously. There's some things we have notes from the after-action meeting yeah. where we have to make some adjustments for the next time we do it. Yeah, like. Actually randomizing the players. Yeah, so that the same people don't play with the same people four times in a row. Even though we thought we randomized it, we really didn't check our work. I, I think everybody had fun, and that was what was important. So Yeah, and, and when you're playing games like Mario Kart, and we were playing across the Switch and the Wii U, um, there's such a difference in control schemes that I think it actually equalizes things a bit. Yeah, my first round I had to play with motion controls, which is not something I like to do for Mario Kart. Um, but yeah. Well, and then the, the, the final, when we had the finalists all playing, we're all playing on a Wii U. So it's not like they could take advantage of all the new control functions right. of the switch. So I thought that went really well. Yeah. But, uh, and, uh, I'll give a shout out. One of our listeners, Kyle, who won the Mario Kart tournament. Congrats. Yeah. Mr. Come from behind. Yeah. So. No, it was a it was a good good fun thing. We uh, put a projector up, and uh, basically everybody was out on the um, the veranda. Yeah. Uh, watching and observing and getting eaten by bugs. Yeah. Because this is Ohio in late May, early June. Yep. That bugs weren't that bad. They they actually weren't. But um, no, I think this is something we should do more regular. I I used to do stuff like this all the I time. I think we should almost stream it. Well, that's the. We keep making promises we haven't been able to keep. Well, we need to invest the time to see what we can do. We also need some technology. Yeah. Well, we're back. We took a week off uh, for the holiday. And actually, our numbers were looking better yeah, than the so weeks that we take off. The moral of that story is every time we take a week off, our old episodes get massive listens. Yeah. And by massive, I mean like five people. Yeah. Um, no, I'm under-exaggerating. But uh, 
so it's funny. Maybe we should take weeks off more often. Yeah, maybe. Or, or not. Or not. Well, we're not going to be taking any weeks off uh, soon because E3 is coming up. Yes. And I know Sean's going to have a lot to talk about. I'm going to have to do my obligatory look at everything Nintendo did. Yeah, but um, that's, you know, Nintendo's only going to talk for like 35 minutes on Tuesday. Yeah. And knowing their press conferences, all of the stuff you expect them to talk a lot about, like, oh, Super Mario Odyssey, they're going to spend, t- they won't spend 10 minutes on that. What they'll end up doing is they'll talk spending, about Splatoon 2. They'll, no, they'll end up spending or 10 arms. minutes talking about how you can customize your character's shoes in Splatoon 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, well, and, and their get out of jail is always, well, we have a treehouse on that coming up where we'll actually dive into more detail only about that game. And, you know, it's great. That is one thing you can never fault Nintendo about doing is kind of, and, and everybody write this down, okay? I'm, 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 I'm praising ready. Nintendo. Ready. Um, is that they do a really good job of pushing their marketing math- message in a consistent fashion. And they focus on specific titles. They don't release very many titles. There's tons of titles coming out, but they don't talk about anything but the big ones. And then they spend a lot of time talking about them. Yeah, I mean, like what they did with E3 last year, with it was only Zelda. Only Zelda. Yeah. But it was still interesting the entire time they were talking about it. Anyhow, this week is not for E3, Sean. This week, we're going to go into some t- tangents. And the first one is Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. It debuted. It premiered. Yeah, I was there uh, Thursday. Sean got to see it. I haven't seen it. So, Sean, how was the movie? I loved it. Um, I'm a big Wonder Woman fan. And and I have been for years. Uh, The Wolfman Perez era of Wonder Woman, which was kind of the post-crisis reboot. And, uh, no, I, I, it was everything I wanted it to be. Uh, there were some small plot holes. It's not a perfect movie. Um, but for a superhero movie, I thought it was really good. And for a DC superhero movie, it was great. Low bar there. Um, To some extent. I mean, I was talking to my wife about this after we saw Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, Dawn of the Punchiness. Um, and what my impression was coming out of those. Because I, I think there's this tendency for me as a longtime comic book fan even a movie is not really good to come out feeling good because i'm finally seeing these characters that i've invested so much of my interest in over the years on the big screen brought to life so man of steel i walked out not thinking it was a horrible film until about 20 minutes later as we're driving home from the theater i and she says i do this every time i see a movie it's the critic in me uh i started tearing it apart Right. I'm like, well, hold on. That didn't make much sense. And then there was this. What led this to this? So I, it, it's that initial kind of the high you get from seeing the film wears off. And it's how long that high goes for me usually determines how good the movie is. Right. And and to be fair, the same thing happened to me with Marvel movies. Uh, so Age of Ultron is a movie that I walked out of the theater thinking, hey, that was pretty good. Yeah. Not as good as Avengers. And then I went back and I'm like, uh, but this was a problem and this is a problem. And why did they do this? And, and that was the first movie for Marvel that I could really see where they were taking the story out of the hands of the creators yeah. and kind of making it, putting it in the hands of the marketing team. Um, so here's the things you have to do in this movie to make these other movies that we're going to make in five years work. And there was a risk of seeing that with Wonder Woman. 
There really was. This could have been a story where they were really just building it up to go directly into Justice League, where she may or may not be the the key figure in that movie. Where Wolverine cambos and says F you and then yeah. like oh ha, ha, ha. Well and and to DC's credit, um first off, this has some of the best action I've ever seen in a superhero movie. Ever. Ever. There's one scene in the middle that almost got cut that everybody's already talking about. And you've seen snippets of it in the in the trailers, which is when Diana get walks out of the trenches and starts to cross no man's land. That is one of the most amazing action scenes I can recall at any time in a superhero movie. It's just it's so true to the character. It's not that the special effects are, you know, super great or or just something visually we've never seen before. It's it perfectly encapsulates that character and what she's trying to accomplish and why she's trying to do it. And you get this sense through the whole film that, you know, Diana is really this champion of people. Um, she's raised with a typical backstory, right? She's raised in isolation on the Masira, which is paradise Island. Um, nobody knows that it exists. It gets invaded by man during war. The one thing that they did do, and I think everybody knows this at this point, is they switched the timeline from World War II, which is when she was created, back to World War I. And that's where one of the plot problems comes into the film, which is so much of her mythology is based around World War II and fighting Nazis. Just like Captain America, right? You can't really separate Wonder Woman from Nazis any more than you can... If you made Captain America punch the Kaiser, it wouldn't be as interesting. Right. But having him punch Hitler, everybody will go pay for that. Except they did, and they managed to make it work. My problem with the historical elements, and, and most of us could be faulted for not really understanding the history of World War One at this point. Uh, I think as anybody who went to school, when I went to school, probably when you went to school, we didn't spend much time talking about World War One. Mm-mm. We spent more time talking about World War II, which was always odd to me, because I didn't feel at that time, you know, and this was the 80s, um, that World War II was that far behind us. It was, it was only 30 years. Yeah. World War One was just like, well, let's hurry to get through this so we can spend time on World War II. Yeah, and, and which is interesting because World War One is actually this amazingly complex war. And, and if you're somebody who's never really studied World War I, uh, when they talk about things like the armistice in this film, because that's the big thing at the end that they're about, they're at the end of World War I, Germany is losing and Wonder Woman appears on the scene. Uh, Stephen Trevor is a spy for America attached to the European commands. The, the sense that this is the end of the war isn't really well painted. And if you think of it your traditional way that we think about World War II, you know, at the end of World War II, you have the Nazis being defeated and you have the Japanese being defeated and there's this actual cessation of hostilities and these treaty meetings and all of that. World War I didn't really have that. It ended with an armistice where you just signed a letter and said, okay, we're not going to shoot each other anymore. And then the other, effectively the allies of World War I, the, um, Great Britain and, and France, went into Germany and, and levied all of these restraints and, and basically said they couldn't have a standing army and all the things that we do after a war. The other thing that's missing here that I, I expected to see more of 
America was part of World War I. We sent people over to Europe. You don't see any American troops in this. Except for Steve Trevor, who's detached on service to the British uh, Secret Services. Hmm. And I thought that was an interesting choice thematically. Um, it, it's not relevant. This is just the kind of yeah. Americentric view that's native to me. Right. Um, but, it, but it speaks to the fact that a lot of the characters in this are diverse. There's a lot of diversity amongst even the Amazons. Um, so you've got multiple races of women. Um, I guess one of the things that they did is they introduced, and if you're a comic book fan, they do introduce Artemis, who's kind of an alternate Wonder Woman in the history of the last few years. At some point, Diana loses the mantle of Wonder Woman in, in this other um, Amazon called Artemis takes up the mantle. And she's kind of more warrior-like than Diana was at the time. She kills people and she's kind of an anti-hero. It was the 90s. You know, they did that a lot. Brooding. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the era where Diana's running around in a half jacket vest thing. Anyway, uh, there's a whole storyline and I'm glad we're not having to deal with that because they introduce Artemis. Artemis, first off, is uh, a little bit of stunt casting. She's like, I can't remember the, uh, the athlete's name, but she is like the number one or number two woman's boxing champion in the world. Hmm. And she plays Artemis, and she's only in some scenes in the beginning. Um, as far as if you're a purist, somebody who's been following Wonder Woman for a number of years in the comics, they kind of cut straight down the middle with her origins. So the, the recent Wonder Woman comics talk about her being the daughter of Zeus, the ancient, and I ancient and by this I mean you know 80-year-old comics, um, Basically, she was crafted from clay and a gift from the gods to Hippolyta. And then the Wolfman Perez, she was clay, but she was a gift from the female gods, not from Zeus. Um, so one thing I will say is, as much as everybody wants to make this a very feminist-oriented kind of film, the story does a really horrible job handling the Greek gods basically ignoring every other member of the Pantheon except Zeus and Ares. Hmm. And that disappointed me because so much of who Diana is is a reflection of her relationship with Hera and Artemis and, you know, all in, in, in Athena and all the female Greek gods who were warriors in and of their own right. And to, to cut them out and say that, and, and, the, and I'm going to spoil something here. They're all dead at the beginning of the movie. Hmm. Basically, all the gods are dead. And so that's key to some of the story. And I think that from a storytelling perspective, I think that was a bad choice. Because it doesn't give a lot of yeah, and, room for and future stories. I'm going to cut in here with a couple of things. Sure. Um, first off, they did that with uh, Batman versus Superman. I was watching some stuff about that and Jimmy Olsen's in it for like two seconds. Yeah. He gets shot and he gets shot because they didn't have room for him. And it just seems like poor decision-making, especially for her with whatever they want to do with the future of these characters is just to say they're gone. They're not here. And like Dick Grayson was dead in this universe too, because he's got a gravestone. It's just, I don't understand it. Well, and I, I think there's an element of, the Batman story in this new DC animated universe 
where you're supposed to expect this is the older, grizzled, kind of weary Batman. Right. And that, you know, we didn't get an origin story because we don't need it. We know about Martha. <laughs> Martha! <laughs> um, and Jonathan, you know, and, and and all of that. But hold on. Isn't his father's name Jonathan, too? No. What's his, his father? His Thomas. Father's it's Thomas. Thomas. Okay. Yeah. I'm confused. They, they have those, that would be just... Jonathan, why did you say that name? <laughs> Everybody's parents are named the same in this Earth 747. Yeah, who knows? Um, um, anyhow, winding back a little bit, how would you say the tone of this movie is compared to Man of Steel, BVS... Yeah, and then Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. All of those movies are very dark. Yeah. And this is a movie that takes place at one of the darkest points in human history, and it's not dark. There's a lot of hope and kind of discovery. Um, I think it personifies who Diana is through this film. And there's the kind of fish out of water scenes when she first gets to London and she's like looking around and doesn't quite fit in and doesn't understand uh, that she can't go into the House of Lords and just start talking. And there's this great scene where she does kind of go into the House of Lords. And they're, they're, if you know anything about British politics, they all talk over each other. It's it's not it's, – it's whoever's loudest the most. It, yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody's filibustering. Yes. And basically, she comes in, and they're like, why is there a woman in here? And it's a mark of this time, right? Because it's World War I, um, and it's appropriate. There was integrated political service at that point. House of Lords were a bunch of lords. There's not ladies in there. Um, and so they make some points to show just how much things kind of change. Um, and I don't want to spoil the, the main story. I figured out kind of what was going on almost immediately. So it's not a deep story. They don't do a great job of kind of hiding the, the subplot and the meta plot. The one thing I will say is at the end of the film, it's wrapped with the, the device that Bruce Wayne sends the original photo type uh, to Diana where she's working in Paris at the Louvre. And the so the photo that's in Batman versus Superman that shows Wonder Woman, he actually finds the original plate and sends it to her, and that's the wrapping device. And they don't. There's no other involvement from any of the other Justice League members. There's um, no Batman. No, well, Superman's dead at this point, obviously. Um, Orieski. Well, yeah, we'll get back to that one when that movie comes out in a few months. Uh, but I thought that was great. Uh, the only thing that kind of worries me is the end. Basically, she thanks Bruce in an email and says, thank you for bringing him back to me. The movie is told basically through her memories. So you could believe that it may not even be completely representative of what, what happened. actually happened, yeah. but kind of her recollection recollection of what happened. Um, I will say that the final battle is a bit of a CGI mess. I think that's one thing that this movie doesn't manage to change about the DC animated movies. The final battle is at night. Keep saying animated. Well, really. you're right. Anim I think of the animated movies, they're actually better. Yeah. Uh, DC uni uh, movie cinematic universe. Cinematic universe. universe. Um, I would say that the final battle visually is a bit of a mess. Um, it's much easier to follow than the darks or not dark side, um, doomsday fight in Batman versus Superman. 
But they keep falling back on the, we can't make it look real, so we're going to shoot all of our action at night kind of tropes. There was no reason this needed to be done at night. And and the the mission it's, they're executing could have been done in the middle of the day. Maybe it's the 90s that did this to me, but anytime there's an action movie that's dark or at night, to me it just says cheapness. So let me give you the counter. Transformers. Many of the action scenes in Transformers are in the middle of the day. But the problem there is not whether it's day or night. It's that the objects, the, the characters are so complex visually that you can't track the action. Right. So in this case, you've got more human figures, so you don't have that problem. But it's just, I'm so tired of all of the big battle scenes happening at night. It, yeah. it is obviously because they're trying to save money on CG. Yeah. And well, and they're making all these, we've got, uh, you mentioned Transformers. <laughs> The way they design those Transformers in those films are just overly complex. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, the cartoon's simplistic, but there's a middle ground there where you can make simplistic with some... Well, they should... And I think Bay has said this before, that he wanted them to not appear completely human, to not be a human shape, but read visually human, but not be human-like. Right. And I'm like, okay, I kind of get that, but... We've gone through what seventeen movies now, and everybody's been blown up and destroyed and upgraded because you got to make more toys. Wouldn't they look more human and even more simple? Shouldn't they look more like the characters that we've seen in the animated series? Okay, well, uh, we don't want to dive into the Transformers thing because that movie's coming out, and maybe we'll talk about that. I I doubt have no desire to see it whatsoever. So I guess overall, your review of Wonder Woman is. It was fantastic. Yes. It was hopeful and bright and cheery and antithesis to everything DC's put out so, so far. I posted on Facebook before I went into the movie theater as I was checking in to see the movie. And I said, please don't suck. Please don't be grim dark. It is neither of those things. It's a good movie. It's fun to watch. And it's standalone. It stands alone. And it is hopeful. It really is. Well. That's good to hear. I will have to check it out. Okay. It's on the, yeah. So let's move on to the next point. And, and let me um, <laughs> preface this by saying Jared's not getting out unscathed this week. Go ahead, Jared. Talk about your point. Um, so Nintendo, out of nowhere last week, has outlined their paid service. The great- Which they immediately told people would be delayed after they told them let me, let me when it was coming. Them. So the good news is <laughs> to play online with the Switch, it's $20 a year. That's cheaper than PlayStation. Ooh. That's cheaper than Xbox. $20 a year. That's a good price. Yeah, it's right? not bad. I mean, that's that's not a bad value, bad value for just playing online now. But let me ask you this. Yes. Based on what you get from those other services, so we'll come back to the parallels of the games. Yeah, but, no, we're no, we're we're going to get into that. But so, I want to talk about infrastructure. Why am I paying twenty dollars? Right. So what does year? twenty dollars get you? Well, it gets you servers so you can play online. What about you know a unified friend system to see what your friends are playing? Uh huh. Well, right now it's still friend codes, but you can see what they're playing. But can you just join the game they're playing? No, no, no you can't. Um, so, so you're telling me that Nintendo is rolling out a gaming network that is designed like 
a gaming network from 1997. <laughs> it's seemingly so. Now, here's another thing about the paid service. They outlined their sort of gaming subscription model, um, which they're calling classic game selection, in which instead of previous to what they've said before, um, it will just be an endless stream of NES games with mm-hmm. online capabilities that you can play. And as long as you're uh, subscribed, you can continue to play because what they had previously said was, well, we'll have a featured game each month. And then when it's gone, it's gone. So like the Disney vault. Right. Yeah. So that's cool. It's actually sort of we're they're getting to the point of a, a, a virtual console. So, let me Netflix. dive now, into that one. Yes, go ahead. So, and then we'll come back and we'll bring Microsoft in this conversation in a minute. But, all right, so they've got the virtual console capability. They're proving it through this game service. And then they're coming back and saying, yeah, we're not sure we're going to do the virtual console. Yeah, they said they're undecided about the traditional virtual console. Let's just forget that and just downloading old games bang, playing for old so games. So you can play whatever you want play and if you have a favorite want, if you have a favorite you don't have to worry about it getting into the subscription service just I want Donkey Kong Country 3 on the Switch. I want to buy that. Mm-hmm. They're undecided. Yeah. And <laughs> there's no talk right now of being able to how they're going to select the game in the months. I'm assuming that there'll be a selection that'll rotate. Yeah. They've got a huge deep catalog they've and they have a huge catalog. And they've now, said that it's going to include at this point Super Nintendo and NES games, right? Just NES. They so there's another dis- question. Who NES Exactly. So <laughs> part of the optimistic side of me says they want to get this little press release out before E3 to get people talking about the price and the delay ahead of time. So people aren't focusing on it for E3. My hope is E3, they're going to surprise us. Virtual Console is going to be there. A couple of the other details. But it still sounds I, I, like Nintendo just doesn't know. It sounds like they're figuring it out as they're doing it. Okay, so now we're going to bring the Microsoft parallel in. Yeah. Because, and we didn't put this in our tangent notes. I can add it. Microsoft announced their Game Pass like last week or two weeks ago, and it went live this week. So for a subscription service, just like what Nintendo is proposing, you get an access to over 100 classic uh, Xbox titles that would span the Xbox and the Xbox 360. Uh, And effectively, if you dive into the catalog, it's backward compatible titles that have already been added and they give it to you on a subscription basis. Now, is this like um, PlayStation's... uh like now yeah playstation now are you streaming these games are you actually downloading them? you're downloading them so there's a differentiator as well uh you actually download it as long as you're it's in the service and you're subscribed to the service you can play it it's it's kind of actually like the playstation plus games where you get up two games or four games, depending on whether you have the two platforms, every month that you can download and install. But they're doing it more of a Netflix model. It's a back catalog. Go back and play anything? Or are they just doing... So the plan, I believe, from what they've intimated, again, this is all marketing, uh, is to expand the catalog. But at this point, it's over 100 games. And if you look at the game titles, it really equates to mostly 
the backward compatible games that have been added in the last few years. The only recent game that really jumps out is the latest Halo. So Halo 5 is one of the games that you can play. The The Gears of War re- redo is one of the games you can play as a part of this. But you can go back and play Gears of War 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. And you can play Kingdom for Kelflings or whatever is on back. And this is independent of an Xbox Live subscription? It absolutely is. It's an additional subscription. Okay. And it doesn't sound like they're going to stop giving the free games either. So, again, we've we've seen, and this is where I think Nintendo lags in this offering. Great. Nintendo's finally decided they're going to offer online gameplay. Are they going to give us consolidated matchmaking? No. Uh, okay, so do I get free games as a means of this? Yes, in a streaming set. But I can't download them. And I don't get to keep them. So if I end my service with Xbox, I keep the games that I've downloaded. Really? So, yes, everything that you've downloaded through the Xbox Gold thing, it's been added to your library you own. Uh, that's why there's generally not the newest or freshest yeah. games. Uh Whereas with the PlayStation, you have the same kind of thing, except but once you don't subscribe... If you, yeah, they're gone. They're gone. And if you let your subscription lapse too long, you don't get them back. Um, so that's another thing, if you're a PlayStation Plus subscriber, to be aware of. Yeah, and that's going to lead into our main topic discussion in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's 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 just how many different models can we, can we either get... Well, I mean, the- can we not get to the point where we have a subscription service... That's Netflix. Hundreds of titles, play them. You don't have your subscription. You can't play them. Or the iTunes or Amazon store. I want this game. Buy it. I have it forever. Yeah, well, you could also get back to Nintendo's historically anti-consumer approach to game licensing, which is how many times have we bought games on the virtual console? Yeah, exactly. And that's going to lead into our discussion a little bit. So let's move forward. Um, That's interesting to know that Microsoft's doing that. I'm sure we'll hear more about that from E3. Um, Back on the Nintendo train, I had a chance to play ARMS. Have you seen this? I have seen ARMS. I haven't played it. So ARMS, for those that haven't seen any previews, is another new IP from Nintendo that was heavily publicized during when they announced the Switch, um, in which it's a sort of a fighting game, and you're playing with characters that have ex- extendable spring arms because fun. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they're fo- sort of following the Splatoon model of having a, a bright world and individual characters and kind of establishing the environment you're in. So what I've heard from people who played it, and tell me if this is a good assessment, uh, that ARMS is basically taking the Wii Sports boxing, putting it into a third-person perspective, and making a game out of it. So, yeah, there's there's the argument of this is what Wii Sports boxing should have been. I will say it is, it's a lot more in-depth than whatever you imagine. Is there a Wii progression Sports. system? Can you upgrade your fighters? Or is it... In a matter of speaking, you can. So... There are 10 unique characters to this game, each with character traits of speed. There's a ninja that kind of has stealth when he dodges stuff. There's Is the, the reach variable? There's the tank. Um, what, I'm Is your reach variable? No. Hmm. So the the way the way they're doing the customization are the individual arms. I'm pulling up my arms for Sean some C. So you get, to threatening choose, me right you get now. to choose different hands, <laughs> basically. Um, okay. Some are like big giant mines that bounce on the ground. Some are 
one's called the Slapamander. It's a giant oven mitt, and it's really fast but weak powered. There's some that have freezing ability. There's um, a parasol that when you shoot it acts as a shield. So if another character is shooting sort of like a missile sort of arm at you, mm-hmm. it blocks those sort of projectiles. Okay. So there's a lot of... Uh, so you get a lot of interplay strategy. There's a, there's a rock, paper, scissors method to it. And you can jump and dodge, and then you can charge up your attacks. You can block, and then you have a super meter. So there's a lot of different dynamics to kind of keep in, in play. And the, and the environment also takes into play. So when you compare it to Wii Sports Boxing, which had hit face, hit stomach, and block, it's completely more um, layered layered than that, especially with the characters and HP. And there's a lot of different modes. Okay. Now, I know where you're going to get concerned is... The motion gameplay. It's wiggle the motion, flick. The motion gameplay is there, um, and I played it on the Pro Controller and with the motion controllers. I think the motion controls feel really, really good. So... Does it actually feel like boxing? Um, it doesn't. It it doesn't feel like boxing because again, you have extendable like spring arms that go about twenty feet. So when you punch, there's a lot of delay before it retracts. So you can't just go punch, 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 punch. Okay. You have to you have to you have to time your punches, and you can also curve your punches in midair mm-hmm. using the motion controls or the joystick on the tra- uh, traditional controller. Okay. Um. So between the two control interfaces that you experienced, which one do you think is more suitable for play? So that's hard to say. I I like the motion controllers better just because you could control your individual arms um, okay. uh, distinct from each other. When you use the t- traditional controls, when you shoot both arms, you can only control both of them with the joystick. So you have a little more control. Okay. Um, now, does that nuance play into competitive play? I think it will for just fun casual play i don't think it's gonna make a difference well it's the same thing you see with like mario kart yeah where people will always prefer yeah but i will say i mean i played skyward sword and wii sports resort and all those and never did i feel that the motion controls were ever working against me compared to those games um you know i think it was really well suited now what i will say about this game is this should have been a launch title this should have launched with the system with zelda and that's it um, to kind of show what the Switch was about, or at least, mm-hmm. hey, this is what Nintendo's doing next. An online game. The online was seamless. Um, no lag. It was great. Um, and so, then there was a, several different modes. They had a basketball mode, a volleyball mode, and like a target punch mode. Okay. And the traditional like competitive gameplay is 1v1, but there is a 2v2 mode. There's a 1v1v1 mode. And then in the last round, they added a uh, three versus like a boss character. So there's a lot of different modes there that keep the game fresh. My worry is with this game is it's coming out in uh, two weeks um, from Friday. um, And Splatoon's coming out a month after that. I don't think it's going to last long. I think it's a great game. I think it's something unique. It's something that's very Nintendo. That's you think they're releasing fun. it too close to another major title? I think it's going to... you know, It has people, a similar audience and a similar I think, interest. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, I'm going to get it, and when we when I get it, I'll do a full-fledged review. Um, but based on what I've seen, I think it'd be a good fun party game. I really do. Just uh, two people punching out. I think it, it lends itself to being a party game, sort of like Mario Kart. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get into that in depth, 
beyond Wii Punching, where you play three matches that feel the same, there's a lot more depth to it. So, Okay, but I think that goes back to your other point, which is with it coming out so soon before Splatoon, which is the ultimate party game. Yeah. You know, well, right Splatoon doesn't Switch. offer local multiplayer. So okay. at least they haven't announced any, and there wasn't any original. That's one flaw of Splatoon is it'd be great to have a split screen four player game, mm-hmm. you know, shrink the map size, shrink it to, you know, and they're, they are going to have local play with Splatoon. Right. So if people have multiple switches, that's going to be there. It's going to have a land mode finally, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, so. again, Nintendo not understanding kind of what people want to play. Yeah. But it is different than anything else out there. And uh, for you that don't like motion controls, it'll be interesting to see how you uh, how you look into it if you ever do play it. So, um, Last on our tangent list, I saw a preview. I was watching something else, and I saw a preview <laughs> for Batman and Harley Quinn. Um, yes. Done in the original animated Batman animated series universe. Bruce Timm animation style. Um Kevin Conroy, great. The voice of Harley, I don't know who they're doing this time, but it doesn't sound like anybody else they've gotten for Harley previously. Yeah, um, it's a it's a new voice actress. Um, but I was sort of wondering if you saw the preview for this and what you thought. I have. Uh, I, I think right now Harley is a little overexposed as far as like kind of like Deadpool, you know, where everything's Harley, everything's Deadpool. Um, I love Deadpool. I love Harley. Uh I, I kind of still get a little tired of them, just like I get tired of Batman. Um, the exposure levels that all of these characters seem to be getting, I think, is a little uh, annoying. Now, to counter that, this whole thing is kind of a heist movie. Uh, and it looks like, from the trailer at least, that they're pulling Harley. Harley's retired. She's no longer fighting crime or being a bad guy. And she's always kind of developed into an anti-hero the last few years. But never in the animated series universe. No, she was always a villain. Yeah. Um, and she had a close relationship with Poison Ivy. And it looks like the Floronic Man and Poison Ivy are the main bad guys in this. So I wouldn't be surprised if Swamp Thing shows up at some point, too. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting. And then there was... So the one of the biggest scenes that they show in the trailer, and they did some early releases, is Batman, Nightwing, and Harley in the Batmobile having this conversation. And it's just... The dialogue is great. And that's that's what I took away from it. Compared to, like, um, Doom or Batman versus Robin or whatever the last one was, these really sort of dark animated yeah. series they've done. This one just seems like a fun romp. Um, if you're familiar with the characters, it looks like a fun time. I don't know. I uh... So Melissa Ranch is who's doing Harley. So the high squeaky voice from that show about fake geeks. Um, oh, uh, Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. I hate that show. Me too. Uh, but the the screechy yelly lady that's married to the, the, the Jewish geek, um, she's doing the voice of Harley. And I think this is a bit of stunt casting. Because I'm not sure her voice fits. Yeah, just based on the trailer, it wasn't a traditional Harley voice. They sort of did like that New Yorkish accent, but yeah. not. They also switched up the voice of Ivy. Yeah, um, Ivy's gonna be Paget Brewster, who is well known for Criminal Mind or Criminal Minds. I think it was she was on that for a while, and then also um, 
late of community, yeah. the Yahoo community. Right. And so she's got the right delivery, I think, for Poison Ivy. Kind of the imperious, dry, deeper voice. Um, I just don't know if this is... And the voice can throw you completely out of these characters. Yeah. But Especially, I mean, like, when you have somebody like Kevin Conroy, who's done the voice of Batman for so long and so well. Um, yeah. When you hear those, when you see the original animated Batman, and then you have a voice that just doesn't fit you know, if you're familiar with those depictions. Well, well, and that's another thing. It's so it's weird to put it back in the Tim universe. Yeah. And then not use the same voice actors. Yeah. Um, Eileen Quinlan, I'm sure, is probably available. If not, you could go with Tara, Tara Strong. Tara Strong has picked up the mantle and kind of emulated that, yeah. that voice. Yeah, and, and the um, Nightwing is a new voice. It's not yeah. the same voice actor. So, and Floronic Man is Kevin Michael Richards, who is the generic neutral dark voice guy for everything you know he's like the he's like the nolan north for bad guys um so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out that comes out in august i believe yes that's true so it'll be right after um comic-con yep all right let's move into our main topic yes So Sean, yeah, Sir Sean, what, what? You're already dis disgruntled. No, no, I'm not. I, I just on. have to play my role. There you go. There we go. <laughs> now it feels like somebody's um, actually playing Mario in the background. So this week's discussion or topic we want to talk about, and this is your week to lead, not mine. Yeah, I know. Which is sad because I could talk about this too. But we're going to talk about emulation. Now this is a so. Jared, when you use the term emulation with regards to video games, what what exactly is the context? What does emulation mean in this context? So it doesn't mean like acting like somebody else. No. What, what does it we're mean? We're talking about emulating hardware or software to play games that aren't available anymore. So you mentioned emulate again, we're not what does that mean, emulation? Does it mean being able to take an original piece of software and play it? Just like even without, so like a Nintendo game. If I have the original Mario, which or Mario Two, you know, and I don't have an NES, right? Is that is that what we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. And then identifying, you know, well, we've seen this, right? We have products. So again, there's a couple different types of emulation. The one that we've mentioned several times on the show is the Virtual Console, Nintendo's pro-sponsored. Um, emulation of their old products the nes classic edition is uh an example of emulating the old games via software but when we talk about these games we're not just talking about console games right we're and this also an issue for pc games we're talking about any and type of arcade game games. software okay yeah so we're not limiting this to nes or nintendo or sega or pc we're talking about games overall mm-hmm um, and there's two types of emulation. The one that we're most familiar with is software emulation. The games were programmed to play on very specific hardware. So to replay them without a lot of reconjiguring or remastering or <laughs> reconjigger, 
is something called software emulation, where software sort of emulating the hardware existed at the time, running it at the the right clock speed, the right inputs. And there's a lot more technical stuff that I don't, I don't know. I just know it works Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to do um, depending on what you're trying to run. You also have to basically build the microcontrollers and the processors in that software emulation layer so that it interprets the code appropriately. Right. So this is me being with my even super geek. And there, there is something also called hardware emulation. Um, Now things like the Retron, are not hardware emulation. Uh, they do let you use old controllers. So what's a, and, hold on, let's back up because yeah. you dove right into things like the Retron and what's a Retron? The Retron, so there's there's a whole new not new. There's a whole gray market of playing old games like they're new again. The okay. Retron is an example of that where you can play um, Nintendo Famicom, Super Nintendo, Super Famicom, Genesis, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance. It's all in one system, and Mm -hmm. it outputs through HDMI, and you can insert your old cartridges to play these games. Now, you can't load the games without the cartridges. Right, so that gets around the copyright concerns. Right, Um, which we'll dive into. But when you put in a game, it's basically dumping what is called a ROM file, basically mm-hmm. the the file or the contents of the code that run the game and run it through a software emulator. Okay. So you can play your game. You can play it from a legitimate copy, but you're still not playing it as if you were to take an NES, plug it in, blow it, even though you don't need to. So haven't we also seen this with some of the, um, and, and I know saw all this in a Kroger and a Target and, in, in you know Walmart where they've had these emulator consoles so that even look like kind of like the NES classic. Yeah, there's Sega's done it. There's a uh, Sega, Atari there's an Atari. I have yeah. the Atari one. Now, re- there's some older Retrons that are actual hardware emulation. They're not dumping the ROM. It's playing it as if you were an NES. Okay. Now, the legality of this, at least from what I've read, is once the patents expire on the hardware, then... These these uh, manufacturers are able to go in and kind of reverse, reverse engineer, engineer yep. um, these consoles. Now, that's fantastic if you have your copy of Mission Impossible for the N sixty four. Because why would right you? Because I, I know we all keep all of our games that we had when we were children. Yeah, no, not all of us do. <laughs> but it's not so good for when games like Mega Man X three go out of print Mm -hmm. and are very hard to find and the question i wanted to ask was is this merely a nostalgic issue or is it a matter of history is it a matter of you know when we talk about movies or books books get reprinted but they also go out of print Mm -hmm. movies go out of. they also go into public domain and they go into public domain which we um, haven't hit 75 years for any of these game titles. No, we have not. So Video nothing games are relatively young, yeah. Um, yeah. which is why we're still figuring some of this stuff out. So, well, and here's a big question. I mean, this is this is a media form that you can only really absorb through technology. Right? Yeah, but we're talking about software. We're not talking about a video or text yeah. or audio, which is another our our most popular consumable media. But I think where you're going is, is this also um, a way to archive the 
the the evolution of this art form. Yeah. And do we see it as art? I mean, there's there's and the there's eternal that whole debate. debate. You know, I think a lot of people look at video games. They look at the annual. You know, like, well, I'm not going to go back and play Call of Duty Four. That's so whatever. We're on Call of Duty Super Space Robots now. I'm not. That, there's nothing there anymore. It's only a slight left of center on that. And then one. you have companies like Nintendo, who bank on that. Who bank on that? Yeah. And it's a question of: Are they banking on nostalgia? Are they banking on? No, this was a big deal and still is a big deal. This is still holds relevant, you know, in hi- the history of video games. You know, Nintendo... But not every video game has historical relevance to the genre. Right, absolutely. I mean, E.T., as horrible a game as that was, actually does because yeah. of its impact on the market. And and the, the impact on the market, the history about how it was programmed in such a short term. But River Raid 2 has no historical <laughs> significance. Yeah. Yeah. Except that it was a title that was available on the Atari. Right. So, you know, this is this is something I'm pretty passionate about, Sean, as we're sitting in the game cave down here. Yeah. <laughs> I collect video games. I collect ROMs. Yeah. Um and part of the reason I collect video games for games, games I own, of course. Of course. Is I want to preserve them. I want to play them. I want to talk about the ones i don't just collect every nes game just so i have every shitty i collect things that are relevant or i can talk about you know like yeah but okay so you collect these things but i don't recall any time when you've like had the museum open house where you've said oh come into my basement well this is getting creepy really quick whoa uh it's creepy come into my basement and i'm going to show you the wonders of the n64 and 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 so i did do that i had a grand opening of my museum. yeah you actually did so and we actually played the virtual boy and half of us had to go see a doctor afterwards yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) um so one thing i wanted to talk about was do we really own our games you know, if you have so, is a game a commercial product or is it a work of art? That's what it comes down to. Yeah, a game is a commercial product. It can become art, but at the same time, do we we don't, haven't quite gotten there culturally, at least in America. Maybe some elements of Japan see see it this way or Europe. And, and I'd love to hear what people listening to the podcast think about this. Um, I think that the there is an art to creating games. But the product is a commercial product. We don't we don't put cereal boxes up on a pedestal and have a museum. Well, there probably is a museum. There is. There's a museum for everything. But culturally, we don't see that commercial art as art. We don't treat it culturally as art. Right. Um, there's no... Well, maybe there are. I don't want to speak in absolutes. There are not a lot of people thinking about that. And I think video games are one of those weird areas where we have a convergence because there are some games I think I could easily argue are about experience and they're really more art-like, right? So going into the Louvre and looking at these paintings, they give you a snapshot in time of what was going on in the world. They introduce you to political themes, styles change, how did the techniques evolve? The same thing's happening with video games. And there's... You know, we haven't really talked about it, but the art of gameplay itself. Oh, what do people do? How you interact? How you interact with games. Um, You know, there's a whole element there. And when we talk about games, it's really a mix-mash of all those things. The interaction, the graphics or art styles. But 
where I think this becomes difficult, and I think this is where you're heading with your yeah. archivist view. Technology. I can't play an Atari console on a modern TV. No. There's no way to connect it. No, if you remember that episode of South Park where Curtin freezes himself <laughs> so he can get the Wii without waiting, he finds himself a thousand years in the future with his Wii, but he has a, a guy come in to hook it up to his like Holotron 3000, and there's no hookups for the, right. the TV because it's well, incompatible. And if you look at the, the materials used to manufacture these commercial products, these games... Even let's just let's take consoles off the market here. Let's just talk about PC gaming. To be able to play a game that came out on a five and a quarter inch floppy today, or even a three and a half inch floppy, or heck, a CD-ROM, all of these media forms only existed in in ready readily available forms for less than a decade to two decades each. Right, and in some cases, like the floppy disks. We're now 20 years beyond when they were actually a viable technology. I, I, well, actually, I sadly, I can remember the last time I used a floppy, but I, but, but yeah, not for been a while. recreation. Yeah. Right. You weren't loading up a copy of, no. you know, Wing Commander off floppy disk. Um, and, and so we do have, but we have some retail archivists happening with this too, which is a form of emulation. And I don't know, and this isn't in our show notes, we should probably add it. GOG, good old games is effectively a, a PC game emulation site. Because if you look at the games that are released there, at least when they started, it's it's become more of a traditional commercial sales portal now. But when they first released Fallout, it was Fallout was written for pre-Windows 95. And it's trying to get it to run on Windows 7 at the time, or Windows 10 today, you had to rely on things like emulation. So DOSBox is an emulator. It's a software emulator for old PC games. And it does a lot of what you were talking about because we now use 64 bit processors, which the concept of that was pretty foreign to home systems. We have high end video cards. We have integrated sound cards. We have memory larger than hard drives. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been playing all through this, right? Where I would load up wizardry off a floppy disk. I remember SimCity 2000 on four floppies. Well, no, when I say I would loaded. You're talking wizardry. Floppy. I'm talking I had to make it. Floppy disks were actually floppy. Well, the five and a quarters. Yeah, (laughs) they they used to be larger, actually. Uh, But I would have to make a copy. To play the game because the game changed the program on the disc as you played it. Mm. It didn't. We didn't have hard drives. Constantly rewrote. To so the if you didn't make a backup copy of your original Wizardry discs and you started playing the game, you could never replay the game because it changed the game because they were read writable. Right. Um, and then now we're at the point where you know we've got all of these technologies, CD-ROM based games. We're we're at the era where DVDs and Blu-rays are no longer our key delivery mechanism for games. We're in a completely digital era. Which brings us to the question of emulation in the future. If we had the ability to do this with these old systems, we can create copies of the programs. Right. Now that we're in the digital ecosystem, that's much harder. So... As a collector, people always ask me, why do you why do you do this? Why do you collect it? You can get Mega Man X3 on the virtual console right now. You can now. 
Yeah. On a Wii U. Can I play Mega Man X3 on a Xbox One? No. Can I play it on a PS4? No, not right now. They had the Mega Man. These games see resurgences, mm-hmm. but then they go away. But so, only some series do. And yeah, not everything. There's games because of licensing issues you'll never see again. Um, so when people ask, why do I collect it? So I can play it when I want to. I have, a, I have a, the means to play a game that I want. Um, the other thing is licensing. You know, a lot of issues with like Mega Man Legends 2 was out of print for years. You know why? There was one song in the game that the artist went away, had rights to the song. And when they wrote the develop, you know, when they developed the game, they're only licensed for the PS1. They didn't the licensing agreements weren't future proof. It was like it's only on this console, yeah. this window of release, and never again. So what they ended up doing is they took out that song and released it on PS3 as a as a PS1 classic. Right. So I guess the overarching question that I don't know if there's an answer to, but I feel like there there is is like you said are these commercial products or do they have some sort of relevance i mean we took we talk about people collecting cars or baseball cards or comic books comic books yeah you know out of print but they have significance people talk about oh this this comic book it's really hard and i'm not talking about superman one you know it's the (laughs) first one let's talk about talking about story arcs that just go out of print they're people talk about them like this was a really good story well i can give you a great example so with the x-men comics uh obviously the phoenix saga which happened in the mid 80s um still in print but what about the proteus storyline that happened immediately before that so you come into this storyline and it's self-contained to some extent but there's these current threads because these were serialized stories you don't have the ability to read those issues that led up to that you know the introduction of dazzler in the x-men line probably is in a trade paperback somewhere but how would i as an archivist be able to follow that story to see the evolution of these characters that's probably less of an issue now that we're starting to digitize and we're seeing Marvel and DC and, you know, Image and Dark Horse and all these companies are absolutely interested in continuing to make money on the product that was produced in the past. And that's easy for them, right? Scan it, remaster it. For a comic book or a book or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. You know, and put it out there. We only have to do that once. Oh, there's new iPads or there's new computers. There's a So we re-encode it and we relicense it. Yeah. But... You know, are we going to be talking about Angry Birds in 20 years? Are we going to be able to play the original Angry Birds in 20 years? Well, and that's where I was leading with the, with the risk of digital distribution. Moving away from physical media means that we've effectively, and, and you asked this question, do we own our games? No. I think we're moving much we're like we did with music. Yeah. Right? So the the Supreme Court came back and said, you buy the media, you don't get a right to the music itself. You get a right to that media. Well, now all of these industries have figured out, A, people don't want media. We want instant gratification. I think for the most part, that's true. For the most part, yeah. And that's... But it it feeds into them to say that you can't replicate media. Remember the the, the recording hubbub in the 70s of, I could record the radio. Yeah, Yeah. mixtapes. How they jeopardized the music. It was the death of the music industry, just like MP3s. 
by the way, music industry seems to be doing pretty well. They're all right. Uh, video games went through the same thing in the last few years, except now we're on almost purely digitally distributed ways. We're moving that way. We're not completely there. But there's been backlash with that, right? I mean, let's talk about the Xbox One. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example where they were trying to push the industry forward, so to speak, by saying, when you insert this disc, you've got a digital copy. You don't have to insert the disc. And then people were like, well, what if I want to sell it? What if I want my friend to borrow it? Well, they didn't. We don't want you to do that. They don't want you to do that. And they didn't yeah. figure it out. And that's the problem I have. Because that friend is a lost sale. And as you. In their mindset. As you have experienced with Nintendo specifically, um, horribly, multiple times. Yes. You've downloaded games and the console dies, and there's no way for you to get those back unless right. you buy them again. Or you go through Nintendo support line to take three years to get them on another piece and of And hope that I get somebody who's sympathetic. So when we talk about, yeah, digitization, I mean, it is where the world is going. But mm-hmm. And th- I don't have this problem with just games, but I have this problem with movies and music. What's the guarantee that if I buy a movie on iTunes in 2017... That in 2025, it won't be unavailable? That it won't, you know, will it be So I'll give you a good example of this, actually. We have a practical one. I bought the Star Wars movies, all of the prequels and everything up to episode six, uh, digitally on Amazon. They're part of the DC movies anywhere except the original Star Wars, because Fox owns the rights to the original Star Wars, not Disney. Or there's some weird right. intermix there. So I can watch every one of those movies on multiple platforms using multiple apps. And they're synchronized across Google, Amazon, anything that I have access to that has it in its library, except A New Hope. I can't watch it anywhere but Amazon. And that's the kind of stuff when we talk about licensing and digital digital distribution that is dumb. It's just dumb. If, if we're ever going to embrace a digital-only format. And we need to stop thinking about ownership as a concept. Right. We don't own these products. We own a license for access. And then we need to understand where they're accessible. Um, which is not completely consumer-unfriendly, right? It, and this is something that's taken the music industry a few years to figure out. The, the television and movie industry figured it out pretty quickly. Which is, hey, first off, it saves us money because it's just servers on the back end versus all this manufacturing. It reduces our lead time. Have you noticed digital versions of things come out before the physical? It's in theaters, so it's like three months later you can rent it. I don't even think it's that sometimes. It's two months. but Whereas we used to have to wait six months to a year. A year, yeah. And and so they're feeding our constant desire for new stuff. To, to counter-argue, we're seeing a resurgence in collector's editions of movies, mm-hmm. um, buying music on vinyl, having a tangible project, music. Um, so what we see in the video books, game space is not books, the same. We thought, we thought with e-readers, books were going to go away. And honestly, book sales are higher now. People like to have a book. Yeah. That they can refer to. I mean, we were talking previously about the um, Arts and Artifacts book of Zelda. Zelda it's yeah. nice to just open an art book and see it on the printed page. That's not going to go away. I don't have to license. I can hand that down. So yeah. 
these these tangible products I don't think are going to go away. But I think it comes right back to is a video game a tangible product or is it a piece of software that runs on a piece of hardware that you have a right to license? Right. And I think that's something that we're going to have to figure out because to me, I'm obviously pretty avid about this, but some people don't care. Whatever their friends are playing, that's all that matters. And And they move on pretty quickly. And and so where it gets interesting is there's the secondary market, the game stops of the world who've been profiting greatly on this kind of disposable game culture where you buy a game, you turn around, you play through it and you move on to the next iteration and you sell the old one for $5 and they turn around and sell it for 40. It's why GameStop had to branch out and is now selling toys and t-shirts and board games, collectibles, because the market is moving towards digital distribution and you can't resell your license. It just becomes a backlog item. Now, let's talk about Steam, because mm-hmm. Steam has adopted a pretty pro-consumer, hey, I can share I would argue Steam is anything but pro-consumer overall. Well, let's talk but specifically. there's the impression. Let's <laughs> talk about specifically about, hey, I want to give this game to somebody else. Yes. You have that option in Steam. If you meet very specific criteria in a very specific window of time. Can you explain those? I don't have them at hand, unfortunately, because I wasn't planning on talking about this. But the basics is that you can get a refund uh, up to a certain point, and you can share your license. But to actually gift it to someone else, they have to have specific conditions within the licensing agreement that allows that. So the publisher has to basically enable that. Yep. Okay. And Steam, of course, is not encouraging it with the publishers. Publishers don't care. They've got their money. They make nothing on an exchange it just means that somebody else gets to play the game and and they can be exploited they want that sale so what you also see with steam is that publishers will drop their prices through the steam sales right to encourage people who normally wouldn't buy or who will impulse buy stuff there's a whole psychology behind steam so there's a there's one a couple more things i wanted to touch on sure with emulation and sort of this grayer area is um out of print or region locked games mm-hmm. there's sort of a gray market on i'm not going to mention any sites because i don't want to use them but you can purchase cartridges refurbished cartridges of games that are out of print or were never released in the states well there's a huge industry for that right um you know the example i'm thinking of is Mega Man: the wily wars which was a sega genesis game that recompiled the first three games mm-hmm. new graphics new sound Ooh, got excited there um <laughs> don't break the mic but never released in the u.s you can purchase that it's playable you can do that. There's a whole reverb market, whether it's legal or not, of people taking the games. Well, if you can dump the ROM from right. the IC chips that are on those cartridges, those physical cartridges, you can easily write them back to a new chip. Right. And here's the other thing, and this goes to the concern around archive. The media by which these things were delivered are disintegrating. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to touch on was there's another console coming out called the Polymega. And it's a modular. We we discussed the Retron, mm-hmm. um, but it's a modular retro gaming console. So if you want to play 
SNES, you lock it on, put your SNES cartridges, put your controllers in. Oh, I want to play a Sega CD. Take that out. Put your Sega CD. But again, these are relying on media. At least right. the original copies have versus something like a RetroPie, which uses ROMs, have a lifespan. Whereas, yeah, like you mentioned, there's main main emulation, main emulation. Yep. Um, the RetroPie. There's, I mean, the Ouya did it. I mean, I bought an Ouya for that specific. Well, and and just to explain what a main is for those who don't know, it's not when you shoot somebody in the foot and they can't walk anymore. It's a multi arcade machine emulation. Because and each arcade machine had was specialized its hardware. own hardware. Yes. So you can't say it ran on an arcade machine the same way you can say it ran on a PS1. Well, actually, if you look at some of the popular arcade games, like the Capcom games, right? So the Street Fighter games. Yeah, they ran on... And, and Nintendo did that, too. That was the whole reason Nintendo stayed relevant. They had an old game called Radar Scope, mm-hmm. which was horrible. I mean, not horrible. It was a um, Space for, Invaders For clone. the time, it, it was a knockoff. It was a Space Invaders clone. Yeah. But, you know, the cost of putting a new arcade game out there with new hardware was expensive. And what they found out was, well, we can reuse this engine, plug in a new chip, and a little game called Donkey Kong. Yep. You know, we'll just put up a new sticker on the side of the cabinet. And Capcom um, did the same thing. Yeah. So, Atari I mean, there, did there it. Is, Everybody did it. There is some... You know, using the but same hardware. But even I mean, then, the generations, need... they were much more rapid than like a console. Release. And that, those are machines you won't see hardware emulation for. Right. Uh, because they require a lot more hardware. And Neo Geo systems. And Neo Geo is an example oh, where they actually did yeah. large carts. I mean, it ran on a... Yeah, and for those of you who never hung out in arcades and played Neo Geo games, they actually were game consoles. Yeah. The the machines were multiple arcade cabinets. They'd have four was games it in them. The MVS system, or yeah. was it what it was? MVS one thousand or something yeah. like that. And when they would swap out those games, a technician would come in, open the back of the cabinet, pull the cartridge out, and put a new cartridge in. And that's all it took. And then eventually they said, "Oh, we could sell this to the home market." Except for those of us who wanted them back then, they were extremely expensive because they never brought them down to consumer price levels. Yeah, and actually that we're touching on Neo Geo, um, there's an article I'll post in the show notes. There's this whole underground world of Neo Geo Geo collecting. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a story about this guy that was trading with somebody else, and he literally had like a briefcase with this really rare (laughs) game, and it sold for $100,000. It's just mind That's only slightly less than it would have sold for new when it was released. (laughs) Yeah. Because they were, you know, we were talking two hundred fifty to a thousand dollars for some of those games. But another thing I want to talk about here, and another reason why emulation is important to the historical element, is is something that you've got a little exposure to, right? If we're talking about PlayStation or Nintendo, or we're talking about Xbox, we've seen a continued updating and, and backward compatibility and virtualization of these programs. What we haven't seen is anybody go back and grab the Atari Jaguar or the Sega Dreamcast and, you know, the Saturn, any of these kind of dead consoles. The We've seen some for Intellivision and Coleco. Turbo Graphics. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. the Turbo Graphics, everybody in America has forgotten about the Turbo Graphics. Right. They forgot about it when it was released. And some Turbo Graphics games released on the Wii Virtual Console, but not yes, the Wii U. which was interesting yeah because they were direct competitors when the nintendo same came with out. genesis i mean sega released games like when the wii came out it was a hopeful future of emulation of emulation 
yeah. and buying these games and collecting these games digitally or licensing them. And Nintendo was happy to be the platform for that. Yeah. Now, I don't know if there was... Well, they ran into problems because of all these licensing agreements. That Oh, Nintendo had to license the agreement and they... they I mean, Donkey Kong Country, mm-hmm. a Nintendo product developed by Rare, disappeared from the virtual console for about a, two years. All three of the original... It's a Nintendo product. How did that happen? It it was there. It wasn't. And now it's finally back. <laughs> right. And but it I, came down to licensing. Licensing. Licensing is the bane sort of to the future of digital media. We see this on Netflix and iTunes and so stuff. So Clone Wars yeah. is going off of Netflix on the 7th of June. <sighs> Where is it going? It isn't going anywhere. Uh, see, that's the problem. At least I've heard nothing because, and again, you get into the licensing, right? Why did they kill the Clone Wars TV series? Well, it was built for Cartoon Network, and then Disney bought, bought Star, Star Wars. Wars yeah. So and we have we can't run it on Cartoon Network because we have our own network, four or we, five of them, which is much superior to Cartoon. No, it's not. no, actually, it has the Disney XD has a less attachment rate than Cartoon Network. Cartoon Network is a default basic thing that they give everybody. Right. Anyway, that's that's where you get into the business side of all of this, right? Entertainment, media, games, they're commercial products. Ultimately, that's all the companies care about is bottom line and revenue and residuals. They've already paid for the development of these things. They've produced them physically. Now we're talking about the long tail, relatively inexpensive, continued profit models that emulation allows. Legal emulation. Right. What we also see are a lot of fans who have technical knowledge who can reverse engineer these cartridges, these games, who can copy and install and create another copy and then pass it on. I've seen torrents for the MechWarrior games. So the MechWarrior games on the PC were some of the highest-selling games that Activision had in that era. MechWarrior 2, MechWarrior Ghost Bear, and then 3, and Mercenaries. But FASA sold the license to Microsoft, so Activision lost the rights, and those games were never updated past Windows 95 and are not available and can't be played. But there's still people who want to experience those games. Um, the Janes series, again, we get into licensing for both of these. Uh, EA put out the Janes series of flight simulators on the PC, and they were great flight simulators. Janes Longbow was an amazing longbow simulator, and longbow being the Apache helicopter. And they went out of license, and now you can't buy them. And you nobody has bought them onto GOG or anything like that, or Origin. They're not updated. You have to go underground to get them. And even me, I'm somebody who owns copies of these games. I can't play them on a modern machine. The publishers aren't going to make any money in helping me. So they've moved on. And in many cases, they may not have the technical acumen to help me. Right. Or, or may require coding to make things work. And that gets, where it gets into the legal aspects. Mm-hmm. of Do you, as a consumer have the right to make these work 
on equipment that you own. So does your do you still have the rights to the music on an eight track? That's a good question. If you play it on an eight track player using eight track media, but you do. That was before the times of uh, EULAs and yeah. user license agreements. Well, that's that was carried by copyright law, right? And DMCA is yeah. kind of taken over some of that Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and that's even fuzzy legality, right? There's there's some things that the the courts interpret one way based on intent. You know, if I intend to distribute, then absolutely I don't have a right. But if I just use it for my personal use, and if the technology doesn't work for me to be able to do that, well, the court doesn't look negatively on me being able to replicate it so for my own use. Um, the problem is that... When you start reselling that or distributing your methods to other people. Then there's a theory that I'm stealing money from the producer. Yeah. And... I would say that's in some ways a false theory. It's definitely false. It's like the the piracy conundrum. For a lot of years in software and video games, there was always the thought that we had to put DRM, digital rights management, into things or anti-copy protections um, to ensure that you know people couldn't freely distribute software because every one of those distributed softwares was a lost sale. And statistically, that hasn't been found to be true. Right. The person who's stealing your software or your game likely was never going to buy it in the first place. Right. And when we talk about DRM just in general, um, like with pirating of movies or um, music, it goes back to what we originally were talking about of people aren't locked down of how they can experience these things. They can have a movie, they can make up a backup, and it will run on whatever they want it to. Mm -hmm. Same with music. They don't have a license on their Zoom when the Zoom dies, they can't listen to the music that they purchased. Well, before. and that's mostly because we have consumer protections in the law that have prevented copyright from being that stringent. Um, when copyright producers have tried to do that, it's gone to the Supreme Court of the United States, it's gone to the world courts, and most of the time they've ruled that you know somebody has a, an ability to do that. It's not illegal. Right. We saw a reversal of that in the 90s and with the DMCA in the 2000s, uh, but largely it's been hard to enforce. And so that's why I think we see this transition onto digital more than anything from a technology perspective. They see it as a way to keep control of their sources and their media. And that's why when I talk about the legality of it and we talk about, you know, what's the future of gaming and in What's the archival concept? I think unless we establish a culture of archive and history, and there are people who do that. There are game historians. There's video game museums. And there's, there's museums. But, I mean, again, we're talking about hardware that has an expiration date. Well, and we see emulation in those museums, too. I mean, there's a lot of purists who say, I want to run this you know, Space Invaders cabinet with Space Invaders hardware and original controls, and the, the tube. CRTs aren't even made anymore. That's a fact. So you can't have, without remanufacturing or recovering um, previously broken tubes, you're not going to have the same experience in five or ten years. There aren't going to be a store of those. And we're not exactly pulling these parts out for their archival value. We're, we're throwing them in the landfills because we're replacing with LCD and LED TVs. Right. And, again, it goes back to the Atari quandrum. 
I, I can't take the two little posts that I unscrew on the back of my TV and connect those little rabbit ears uh, where I used to put my antenna. We don't use that interface anymore. And even if we did, it wouldn't work. Right. Because we've moved to a digital video stream. Well, then you could talk about modding those consoles. Because, I mean, people have modded. You put a converter in there. To HDMI. Yeah. And people have modded those for RGB. and. But that takes a lot of commitment. It's a lot of commitment, a lot of cost. And again, what happens if you fry your system in the process? Yeah. There's risk. So, um, is there anything else to say on this topic? No, I want to kind of point out that uh, emulation, there's a bunch of emulators out there. And so another one of the reasons I use emulation is in situations where my consoles die. Um, And specifically, if I'm looking at the modern era, my PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, uh, I have an emulator program that I use that has a copy of the ROM from my PS2, meaning the system ROM that I can then put a disc in my disc drive and play Final Fantasy XII. Uh, I also have one for my Wii, which I have a Wii U, so I can play Wii games. But there's an emulator called Dolphin that does... Cuban Wii. For the Wii. And and actually, one of the things that's really nice about Dolphin, and one of the advantages we didn't talk about here, is these emulators can often make the games look better and run better than they did on the consoles. So when I play Final Fantasy But that's not the intended use of the publisher of the game. It isn't the intended use, and it actually doesn't fit with the purist methodology either. But I want HD graphics and interlaced interpolation for Mario and Super Mario Galaxy or Super Mario Sunshine. fantastic in HD. They look amazing. The assets are there. It doesn't look bad. It's not an Atari game, right? The question is, is this a niche thing or, you know, are in 50 for us, we're in the same generation that these games came out. Yeah. You, you remember when the Atari came out? Remember when NES came and came out? I remember going to the dollar store and seeing all the Atari cartridges. There. God, if, if only we knew that. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> um, there's a market like, for that. You, you have children. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll turn this around back to you. I do. Yes. They are my archive. Yeah. Do they play, do they have any interest of any games that you've played that came out before their time? So I try to introduce my kids to some of the older games, Um, even more recent older games. So things like the Baldur's Gate series or Planescape that got redone. Um, And the problem I'm finding, or I bought the Atari emulator, right? Where we had 50 Atari games on it. Right. Hooked it up. Played with my son for maybe an hour, and he said, this is way too basic and simple. I don't really want to play this anymore. I'll do it for you, Dad, but I don't want to play it. As far as the Genesis and the PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 games, they have memories of those games, so they want to play them. If I talk to my daughter, Alex, who's in college, and we talk about the... um, There was a number of educational games that we had based on PBS Mm-hmm. Um, products and they or the SpongeBob games, they have these fond memories of these old SpongeBob games that they can't play anymore on the GameCube or on the PC. Right, and they're like, so they want to play those games for the nostalgia. And we didn't really touch on the nostalgia piece because it's in our notes, and I right. and we're going to talk about it. But 
it is about the nostalgia. It's about recapturing that moment of experience or, or rekindling those memories of when did I play this game and who was with me and what was the point in my life. Nostalgia was once seen as a mental illness because it was it was interpreted as something where somebody was unable to deal with their current situation and move forward. And I don't think anybody feels that way about nostalgia anymore. It's not clinically classified that way. We've done an entire episode about this, yep. but you know, can it can it be overdone? Yes. But is it okay? Yeah. Well, and I think there's an element of uh, it's like the stories that my parents told about I went to the sock hop and met Bobby Joe and he drove his 1957 Corvette and, and I'm making this up. Yeah. But you went know, to make out point. Right. Yeah. So at some point in their life, they wanted to go find a 1957 Corvette and just basically revisit the memory. Um, I think that there's those elements of experience that we like to relive that are triggered by things. And this is a situation where, aside from preserving art, aside from preserving you know, corporate product, games have an impact on people. We play them because of the experience. It's and it's funny you said that because we we're all familiar with Facebook and all the people saying millennials and all this other stuff. But um, a friend of mine, Allison, if you're listening, um, posted somebody had posted on her wall. You know, I remember going out and play playing outside, not playing video games. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa! I remember playing video games. I mean, their video games are tied to my. Mm-hmm. experiences just as much as going out and camping and doing outdoorsy things, riding my bike. They're, they're not, not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. And in fact, I mean, there's damn baby. Uh, a story I think I wrote a post <laughs> on a long time ago, but um, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, but um, I had a barber mm-hmm. that we went to. Uh, my dad knew somehow he ran his own shop to where we got our hair cut. My brother, myself, and my dad would go, and he had an NES. He played video games. Mm -hmm. That's how I learned loving playing video games, playing games I hadn't played. That's how I found out about them. Um, I have very distinct memories. And very emotional ones. Yeah, emotional ones. And it gets more emotional because um, that barber, his name is Bruce, um, died in a motorcycle accident. Um, when I was in high school or early college and he was, he wasn't, I mean, we, we helped mow his yard and good guy, but I remember exactly what I was doing when I found out the news, I was playing Tetris mm-hmm. attack. <laughs> I was playing single player and I was playing on Poochie's level. If you played Yoshi Poochie, yep. that music is emotionally tied to that. Um, so, I mean, it's just like people going to drive in and remembering their first date and all this stuff. There's their personal nostalgic appearance. Well, games are made to have an emotional connection these days. Right. I would say that it was kind of a corollary earlier in the development. I don't think anybody thought that combat was going to leave you with a lasting memory. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I think there's a very big difference between combat and Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. You know, anybody who played through Final Fantasy VII all the way and really enjoyed it, when they hit the major story beats, they were emotional and they had an impact on you. And that's that's an argument I try to, for some non-gamer people, is there, there are games with great stories that mm-hmm. rival 
novel novelizations and and movies. I mean, there there are there. You know, when we talk about Rain, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, maybe not. They're they're not all that level or that caliber, right. but they're there. Yeah, the point of Tom Clancy is to have a strategy team where yeah. you go shoot people. I mean, it's, I mean those. And then we get into storytelling and those stories. But if you're talking like an Abzu or a Journey or a yeah. Flower, those are our own stories too. What we took out of them, yeah, or, they're an emotional experience. But those kind of leave the narrative to you mm-hmm. as you play. So it's like reading. You know, I have a fond memory when I was a kid, and you know, I'm a geek of reading the Lord of the Rings. And I'm not Christopher Lee, and I'm not rereading it every year because. <laughs> Frankly, some of the language is just way too dense. And and I have the edited version that I've read in recent years where I skip whole paragraphs talking about Tom Bombadil. But those are no different from a triggering perspective for me. And using triggering in the truest non-loaded sense here, right? right. Sometimes a scent, a sight, you know, a, a book, a game can trigger a memory of something that's not even connected to it. Yeah. And it's the same thing. So I think there's a value in, in emulation. And this seems like we've gone completely off topic, but we I did. don't think we have. No, we, we're talking about why is it important that emulators exist? And why is it important to consider these emulators as the means by which we preserve our memory? The same way we preserve an archive of important documents or even newspapers, which may or may not have been important, right? Um, I, I would argue that news is pretty important and seeing how people looked and responded to things. But we also have archives that show clothing, right? How did we wear clothes or what did clothes look like? What what was the prevailing fashion? And these are all about documenting the progress of humanity. And that sounds way more grandiose than probably many people would think it deserves. But we're in an era where this is as compelling a form of entertainment as the radio play was 50 years ago. Yeah, when we're talking budgets that rival movies now for video games. So it's an industry that's incredibly large. And it is a common touch point. We were talking about this before we went on on air. I was kind of joking about how I was thinking to this recent resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons and how it's kind of cool and how everybody kind of has a D&D story right now. Yeah, and some of it is marketing. I mean, it, it's it's recognizing that the iron is hot for Wizards of the Coast and striking, um, because it was like this in the '80s too. There was a period in the '80s where everybody was the Red Box era, as we all fondly remember it, and then it kind of went out of style again. And, and you know, but as you said, and and I actually I think I want you to to share your your response to that, which had to do with a realization in our culture about how people consume entertainment which is everybody is a nerd in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's a nerd. We talked about fantasy football and... and ba- fantasy baseball, ba- oh my God. Baseball cards, coin collect. Everybody's a nerd in their own way. And I think I think what we've realized as a society is, yeah, have fun. Whatever. And there are elements of society, baby boomers, but when who, who don't accept change because they're getting old. Right. There's there's that isn't just a trope. It's actually true. Yeah. They can't relate to it. But we're not talking about things. Video games are something that a lot of those people can only barely relate to if they're at the end of that generation. And if they were really aberrant and I that sounds like a value judgment, I don't mean it that way. But your typical 60 year old did not play video games as a form of recreation. 
So drop 20 years off that and you're in my generation. And we we still weren't typical, but we were pretty common. But I, and we were talking about this, you know, when, when you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, it wasn't the cool thing to do like it is now. No. It was sort of... It was something we just kind of did in the corner. We yeah. did in our... Ba- it's Stranger Things, right? So yeah. those four kids in Stranger Things, which are cool to us now, we look at it and we're like, that sounds awesome. we got everybody and their brother looking into this concept of the social gaming, which is really what it is. Because I think that there's a need right now for people to reconnect socially because Facebook doesn't do that for nope. us. Texting doesn't do that Instagram, for us. Instagram, all that stuff. All of our Snapchat. communications have become completely... Absent of having to be asynchronous. Yeah, they're asynchronous. You don't have to be in the same room. You don't have to be with the yeah. same people. We're, that I think there's a certain percentage of our culture that is just absorbing and, and craving social interaction and direct social interaction. Um, I, I watched an interesting documentary, and this is a complete tangent, on sex and love in Japan right now. It was put out in 2016. And they're talking about how some... And I can't remember the exact number, so I'll probably get this wrong. But just to make my point, like 50% of 24-year-olds in Japan have never had sex or a relationship. And that's not male or female. That's Hmm. both. Because their culture has not incentivized it. Um, They had a really bad financial crisis. and, and, And culturally... And again, I'm stereotyping a little bit here, so forgive me. Um, When you have a family in Japanese culture traditionally, if you have two working parents, the wife quits her job and raises the kids. The husband is dedicated to making the money. When you have an economic crisis where you need two incomes to survive, why would you ever have children? And so this is a huge crisis they're facing culturally. But one of the things they brought up, and, and to bring this back on topic, one of the things they brought up is that the one of the people they interviewed said that it's so hard for his generation to interact with people of the opposite sex because they don't have to. Even if you look at Facebook and Snapchat and you know Twitter and everything else, Instagram – you can have conversations without ever actually meeting somebody. So they never learn those social skills of, hey, you and I are in a room. We disagree. But we're still not going to hate each other. And the other thing that they called out was the liberation of Japanese women, which is they experienced similar to what we had here in America in the the 40s, where women became – recognized as being self-sufficient to a large extent. They could have their own careers and and make their own money and, and all of that. The Japanese men were traditionally used to a more subservient kind of mode for women, and now women are seen as peers. And so a lot of Japanese young men won't approach women because they're afraid of rejection, which all of us suffer through that in our puberty, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still afraid of rejection, and I've been married for 25 years. Anyway, we were way off topic. That was um, a big tangent. That in the middle was probably the biggest tangent we've ever hey, gone on. That's something we promise you. It's in our name, <laughs> and we brought it to you, the consumer. But to bring it back to emulation, yes, I think my final perspective on this really is that emulation serves a lot of different functions, one of which is the archival cultural memory. 
And it's also about the nostalgia. And we've talked about the yeah. good and bad of nostalgia. Yeah. So uh, is, what's your kind of final thought? Um, you know, something I try to tell people is there, there are games. <laughs> yeah, we've got our Marios. We've got our other things up there. There's something out there for everybody. And it may not be now. It may have been 10 years ago. It may have been 20 years ago. There's something fun out there. And it's nice to see a sort of resurgence in sort of retro games and, you know, people bringing them back. We see these recollections or the Disney afternoon pack or the Mega Man Legacy. And they're finding a market. They're finding a voice. It's nice to see those going back out and people talking about them now. Um, my, my final word is, you know, I... I hope that people see video games and these, you know, I think we've looked and said, you know, music is a form of art. Movies are a form of art. Yeah. They're commercial products in the end. Somebody's trying to make a buck. Somebody's trying, mm -hmm. nobody goes out there with the intent of like, I'm going to invest my life savings in making this book. And I don't care about the outcome. Like there's financial gain isn't, well, and maybe it isn't and all it's, finance. Maybe it's but, also they want to have an impact on the world. Right. And I think video games, we're still figuring that out. Mm -hmm. And like Sean said, when we talk about combat and these other games, <laughs> the impact of what they had on the world is not there. But when you start looking at the history of what it took to make these games, the programmers, the, the you know, I, I wrote an article about um, music and video games wasn't. It wasn't somebody laying down notes. They programmed the music. Yep. Um, they had to be a programmer and a musician at the same time. There's a lot of, you know, technologies in depth, and I don't want to lose what to, went to making these things. You know, now we have engines and, you know, people are much more specific in what they do in the video games. But So would you say that despite the fact that technology often dehumanizes people, this is a case where you can apply technology for a very human purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I would summarize it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so that let's move on to our one dumb thing. Yep, we've got one dumb thing. And this week's one dumb thing is brought to you by Nintendo. Nintendo. Big surprise. And uh, this didn't make into our online service uh, discussion, but as part of Splatoon's debut, and the <sighs> debut of Nintendo's online service, well, let's talk about voice chat. Yeah, why would you want to talk to other players? It's almost like you'd like to talk with them and coordinate your attack and maybe say, hey, where are you on the map? Oh, there's guys attacking over here. Nintendo is offering that. Good. <laughs> However, not on the console. You're going to have to download a mobile app. And we knew this. We knew that we were going to have to do the voice through your cellular phone or your tablet or your computer device. Okay, so but, that doesn't sound bad. What's bad about this? <laughs> I'm setting you up. Yeah, so <laughs> we've posted in the show notes, there's an official headset for Splatoon. Now, to hear your friends and the game at the same time, it's going to be done with lots of cords. <laughs> and a penis-shaped mixer. <laughs> I mean, so, squid shape. There's mixer. a mixer. <laughs> so you can plug your headset into it. One cord goes to your mobile phone. One cord goes to the switch. So you can get the audio from the game. And what year is it? It's 2017. I just uh, don't get it. They could not have 
figured out a better solution for this. I'm sure they could have, but they didn't. It's just look at the diagram and you tell me if that's complicated. So I don't think it's complicated. I think it's stupid. It's stupid. It's dumb even. Um, all right. Well, that that's going to conclude our episode this week. Um, we want to thank everybody coming back. Um, we want to know what you thought about this episode. I think there's a lot of opportunity for input on this episode. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you think. Do you, like playing old games or you're done with them you only care about halo 5 well and i think i'd be interested in sharing if if the audience wants to if any of you have specific stories about a classic game and and what it kind of evokes from a memory or an emotional sense memory with you yeah um those types of stories i think are important to also tell yeah which is how, if you're listening to a gaming podcast, you obviously care to some extent about gaming. Maybe you're not the artsy-fartsy type who wants to think about the greater social impacts of gaming, or you're not you know, like me where you're looking at the foundations of gameplay and how games are made. But all of us has a story about how games have touched us and where they've touched us, and we'll show you on that doll. <laughs> but uh, you knew I was going there. I Yeah. Um, once I'm on that roll, I just don't stop. But uh, be sure to continue to listen. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. If there's any topics you want us to cover on upcoming podcasts. And this is an opportunity. If you do have a story to show, show, share, 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 um, we'd be happy to have you on. Yes, yeah. we do have the capacity to have guest hosts. You could come and visit us. We could do a Skype. Um, we'd be happy to hear those stories. So reach out to us via our various social media means. Yep. Or uh, on our website. And even if you're listening to this in the past, like we're weeks and weeks and weeks beyond, mm -hmm. when you finally get around to catching up to this episode and you listen to it, we still want to hear from you. Yep. So with that, I think we probably should wrap it up. We have some great closing music this week. We do. Uh, next week, we'll be doing some predictions for E3. Yeah, the road to E3 is next week. And then the following week, we'll have the what the hell did they do at E3? Yeah, so... So probably largely tangent-filled, even though it'll actually be the topic. Yep. Exactly. We may, may may have more than one dumb thing. We might have a <laughs> few dumb things. So again, thank you everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! All the world is waiting for you And the power you possess in your satellites, fighting for your rights, and the old red, white, and blue.